Good morning. Well, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for the opportunity to come and study. And we just ask for your spirit of love and truth to pour into our hearts and minds and enable us to be lights for your kingdom in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we are doing lesson number seven in the quarterly, the least of these, uh, ministering to those in need. And just before we get into the lesson today, I received a couple of emails this week distressed about uh, something that I presented a couple of weeks ago. And I'll read one of the emails. It was um, both emails concerned about the same thing. And uh, the email uh, goes, uh, in your uh, July 27 uh, Sabbath school lesson, you said parents who brought their children to the U.S. border were ultimately responsible for putting them in such dangerous situations. Situations so bad that some even drowned trying to cross the river uh, with uh, their little ones. Do you think they loved their children less than parents do in the U.S.? Then this was the concern of a couple of people. Um, and so my response, I sent an email response. My response, I'll share it with you. Um, your question is not relevant to the point. The point is that all parents have the primary responsibility for the welfare of their children. It may very well be that this person loved their child very much and did what uh, he did, hoping to give her, her, uh, his child a better life. But the, that parent still took the risk to put the child in danger. No human government did that. Not the U.S. government, not the Mexican government. It was the parent. Uh, there are legal ways to enter the country. My sister-in-law is from the Philippines and had to go through a lengthy process to enter this country. She made a choice to come into the country through the methods established to allow for it. This parent chose another method. Who is responsible for the choice of this parent? The problem in society today is that, cor- is that a corrosive idea is being promoted that if some other party does wrong, and notice I'm assuming the worst case scenario where the other party is in the wrong. If some other party does wrong, then we are no longer responsible for, the de- for our decision-making. It is the other party's fault. This is the point of my comment. Amen. Amen. So in our lesson today, we're going into uh, the title, Jesus and Those in Need. And the memory verse is from Luke four eighteen and 19. And it uh, reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And I want to kind of quickly go through those points. What is the gospel? He's going to proclaim the gospel. What is the gospel? Good news about ultimately about God, and what is the purpose of presenting the good news about God? What's the point of preaching the gospel? To convert people to denominations? To build up our tithe base? What's the purpose of preaching the gospel, the good news? To lead people back to trust in God for... There you go. It's ultimately for the good of the people. It's not because, well, God needs more followers. It's that God wants to heal people, and only when those who trust him are going to be healed or are opening their hearts for healing. So the purpose of the gospel is to win people to trust so that God can heal and transform them. Who are the poor being referred to in the Bible text there? Is it referring primarily to financial poverty or something else? In the Beatitudes, you'll notice in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But in Luke, he says, blessed are the poor. Which one's inspired? Well, both are. Because in their mindset, there was the health wellness type thinking. If you're poor, you're poor. If you're poor financially, that means you're not blessed of God and you're only out spiritually. And if you're wealthy, then you're right with God. And so this blessed are the poor, in their context, meant the poor in spirit. 
Why and how or why are the poor blessed? They know they need something. Because they know they need something. Yeah, okay. And I'll tell you, there's another corrosive idea that's going around in popular societies. You know, and you hear it when the woman anointed Jesus' feet with an expensive oil. How dare this woman use this expensive... And the oil was so expensive, it was one year's salary. So we could expect that this one little bottle uh, in today's market would be probably about forty to $45,000. So a $40,000 bottle of ointment she puts on Jesus' feet. And the criticism is, there are hungry people on the street and homeless people. How could you possibly do this and not help these homeless, poor, wretched, downtrodden people? Do you hear this being just hammered in society today? And Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. Now, now I'm getting to a point here. There were several times Jesus fed the 5,000, fed the 4,000. He performed a miracle. He performed a miracle to provide food. Why didn't he instead take those coins that Peter found in the fish's mouth and multiply those and give everybody millions of dollars? Was that beyond his ability? No. Or could he have done that? You're laughing at this. Why are you laughing? What would have been the consequence had Jesus performed a miracle to make every person in Palestine, in Jerusalem, in, in Judea at that time a millionaire? Well, inflation for one thing, but gold, but it's all gold, so gold is gold, okay? What would have happened? Rich increase with the goods and have need of nothing. Oh, he says Laodicea. They are rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. And so would they be blessed are the poor in spirit, or would they now think they are right with God, their hearts close? Yeah. Is God ultimately concerned, ultimately, his ultimate goal for us to live prosper- prosperously here on this planet today? Is that the ultimate goal? No. What's the ultimate goal? Eternal life. Who are the brokenhearted? Is this speaking primarily of physical injury or relationship problems, or is it speaking about something else, the brokenhearted? Is, it, is there a passage? Uh, one of the things I'm going to hammer in a moment today, I might as well start now, is that when you read stuff, hopefully your mental computer is able to immediately have multiple data points and facts and truths and Bible references and through prophecy and all these other things that you are able to have simultaneously held in your consciousness, that you're all uh, bringing them all together. So when you read something like this, you go, the brokenhearted. Well, you know, Peter wrote about the uh, corners, uh, a, a stone that was rejected by the builders, but we are to fall on it and be broken. Does that have any play in this? The bro- blessed are the uh, broken or come to the, the heal the brokenhearted. The heal meaning we fall and are broken, but then he gives us a new heart and right spirit. Is that what he's referring to? What about the captives and set at liberty by Jesus? The Jews believed the Messiah would come and deliver them from Roman captivity. Is that the gospel? No. no. From what captivity was Jesus coming to free people? Satan's lies. Satan's lies, number one, and there's another captivity. Not fear and selfishness, our carnal nature. We live in fear, and we're, and we're slaves to it. It says in uh, Hebrews 2, again, does your computer go, start running down immediately and go, oh, okay, in Hebrews 2, uh, he, 2, 14 and 15, he who knew no sin became sin uh, for, for us. Is that the one? No. It's, uh, he took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him as holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those 
who were held all their lives into the slavery of the fear of death, to come to set the captives free. What are we enslaved to? Enslaved to our own carnal nature, the lies about God, and fear of death. He wants to free us from that. It's the ransom metaphor in many places. This morning there was an article in the newspaper that atheists don't really fear death any more than Christians because of the ideas. It didn't say this, but my interpretation is the ideas of the Christians. There might be truth in that because so many people are eternal burning hell and so forth. Who are the blind and what does it mean to give them sight? Are we talking about physical blindness here? Or blind to the reality of God's kingdom and how the universe works? Do you, does, your, does your mental computer immediately uh, draw in and you hear the blind? He was like, do you draw in Revelation 3.18 where the message to Laodicea is that we need ISAB so that we can see? Do you connect those pieces? Who did Jesus set free? Who are the oppressed? Free from what? Is Jesus teaching the penal legal theology which claims that we are set free from the punishment of sin when we claim his legal payment in our records in heaven? Is that what he's saying? Is that he's going to set us free from the punishment? Or is Jesus come to set us free from sin itself? If he sets us free from sin, where is he working? Where is his action to set you free from sin? Where does he have to work? Do you see a danger then in teaching theology that says he's working in books somewhere? So from the remedy, the same passage from the remedy, God's spirit is on me because I am his anointed one to bring the remedy to the afflicted. He has sent me to bring freedom to those held in the bondage of fear and selfishness and clear understanding to those blinded by Satan's lies, to exterminate oppression, to remove human brokenness, and to make God's pleasure known this year. Friday's lesson. And notice we're going Sabbath, and then we're jumping to Friday. <laughs> and we're jumping to Friday because I could not let this pass. First paragraph in Friday's lesson is from a book you might have heard about. It's called The Great Controversy. I'll read this paragraph to you. God has given in his word decisive evidence that he will punish the transgressors of his law. Those who flattered themselves that he is too merciful to execute justice upon the sinner have only to look to the cross of Calvary. The death of the spotless Son of God testifies that the wages of sin is death, that every violation of God's law must receive just retribution. Christ, the sinless, became sin for man. He bore the guilt of transgression and the hiding of the Father's face until his heart was broken and his life crushed out. All this sacrifice was made that sinners might be redeemed. In no other way could man be freed from the penalty of sin. Every soul that refuses to become partakers of the atonement provided at such a cost must bear in his own person the guilt and punishment of transgression. Amen. Right. Do you see why I couldn't let that pass? Yes. Yeah. How do you hear this? First question that you ask yourself when you read this is, what law lens am I looking through? Am I looking through human law? If it, God's law works like this courtroom, system of rules set up, no inherent consequence, then God is the one who's going to use his authority, his power, to inflict punishment because that's what justice has to do. You have to punish the lawbreaker. 
But if God is the builder of reality and his laws are the laws upon which creation operate, then how do we see justice? How do we see punishment? Does it come out from him or does it come when he removes his restraining hand and lets one reap what they've sown? Notice the quote itself says, look to the cross of Calvary. And what did God do to Jesus at Calvary? What did he actually do? God the Father, what did he do to his son there? He rained fire down on him to burn him for as long as all the sins of the world deserved. I mean, that has to be several weeks because we know that many, some will be in the fire burning longer than others. And if every sin is placed on him and he's going to punish him for every sin, then he must make him burn for several weeks so that every sin is properly punished, right? Well, that's what the legal model teaches, that all sins were placed on him and he was punished by his father. How could this be true if he's not raining fire down to torture him for his sins? Do you see this inherent contradiction for any thinking person? If you actually begin asking the questions, you can realize that this penal legal theology is a fraud. What did his father do to him there? In his face. He set him free, let him go to reap what Jesus chose. No one can take my life. I choose to give it freely. For the life of the world. For the life of the world. Yes, this was a choice on Jesus' part. Now, why did the Father separate from him? I think it's because of how design law works. How does reality work? Who's the source of life? Jesus stayed away from Lazarus for a few days for a reason. What was the reason he stayed away? He couldn't have died. He couldn't have died, couldn't have died if Jesus had been there. Do you think Jesus could have died on the cross if the Father hadn't separated from him? It wasn't a punishment from the Father. It was the Father and the Son cooperating together to allow Christ to achieve the mission that they together formulated to save humankind. It's the only way uh, he can't... I'm going to let you go to the choice you've freely chosen to achieve the outcome we both want. As painful as it was for all of them to do. It was the only way. And you see, and so even within the quote, without even comparing anything else, within the quote itself, you can realize what the punishment looks like and what the Father does. So there is a punishment for sin. There is, absolutely. The question is, from where does it come? From God handing it out to those who would not otherwise reap it, or from the condition of sin itself? If you read the first part of that, it's very confusing. Yes, it is. It's very confusing if you just read it without understanding the law. Justice is defined by the law. So what law do you have in your mind when you first read it? And most people think through human law, and that's how they read this. Executive justice language is used. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means executing or carrying out what the law requires. Well, what law? Back to the same question. What does the law require? What law? Well, it's design law. And so God is saying he will act in perfect harmony with the laws that he built reality to operate, and he will not change his laws to protect people who, who insist on staying out of harmony with those laws. He won't change them. One of the problems, again, is we struggle, we all struggle, with assimilating and integrating multiple pieces of evidence to formulate ideas we struggle with that. And we often will be tempted to read a paragraph like this, which is one data point. This paragraph's one data point. It's like, think about a, a, a jigsaw puzzle. And we've done maybe some of those that have 5,000 pieces. Maybe you've done a 10,000 piece one, a really tough one. 
I will tell you, the great controversy has more than 10,000 pieces. But we will take one piece of a puzzle, maybe three, and we put them together and we look at it and go, ah, here's what it is, and we leave 10,000 pieces out. The challenge is to assimilate all the data points as much as we can and include them in our understanding of what's being taught. So here are a couple of quotes from the same author, from the same author, and we want to integrate the paragraph we just read with these other quotes. And here's the, I'm going to just remind you of the first sentence that you said it could be very confusing. Here's that first sentence, and then we're going to go straight into the other quote. God has given in his word decisive evidence that he will punish the transgressors of his law, end quote. Now, right into the other quote. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. This is first selected messages 235. Now, God has given in his word decisive evidence that he will punish the transgressors of his law. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. Are these contradictory statements? Could they sound contradictory? If we, if we can't integrate, then we choose. If we can't integrate and understand how they're both true, then we pick one and ignore the other. But the second one, as you read the whole thing, describes how the punishment comes. Men cut themselves off. This is design law. There's a consequence. The laws of sowing and reaping, the law of exertion. If you exercise something, it gets stronger. So if you exercise evil and self-centeredness in your character, you become more evil and self-centered. These are design laws, how reality works. Also, the law of liberty. God gives you freedom. He never forces you. These laws he sustains. And so in the end, there is ultimately a punishment. And the punishment comes when they cut themselves off from the source of life and the end result is ruin and death. And that only is possible because God continues to sustain the laws upon which reality operates. You can't die from jumping off a building if God suspends the law of gravity. It's only because the law of gravity is not changed that this happens. But God doesn't cause you to die. You chose to make the jump. So... God has given his word decisive evidence that he will punish the transgressors of his law. But we are not to regard him. Yes, because he doesn't inflict the punishment from him, but he doesn't suspend the laws of reality that cause transgressions to result in punishment for those who won't allow him to heal them. Which to them feels like punishment from God. That's right. That's their perspective. So the punishment is not because God kills those who would otherwise live, but God doesn't use his power to prevent what sin does to them. Did you hear that? He doesn't use his power to kill those who would otherwise live, but he doesn't use his power to to stop sin from killing those who won't allow him to heal them. So executive justice does what's right. It applies design law of his government, leaving them free to reap what they've, they've chosen. Now, the same, that first paragraph we, we read out of Friday comes from a book called The Great Controversy on page uh, 540. We're going to read from the same book, Great Controversy, page 541. 
Okay. Very next page. So we're right in the context of, and we, we see an expansion of what that paragraph means by the same author. Are we going to include these extra data points or are we going to stick with that one paragraph and build an entire theology off that paragraph, which many people do, and they get a corrosive, wrong view of reality. From the same author, let's, let's read this. I'm going to break it down with you guys. God has given to man a declaration of his character and of his method of dealing with sin. Pause right there. Will it matter what character of God we view him to be? And what methods he uses? And what do you understand his character to be? God is love and his methods are design law. How reality works. Truth, love, freedom. And we'll, going on with the quote, this is uh, quoting Exodus 34. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. He won't suspend the laws of reality for those who won't allow healing. That's what that means. He won't clear the guilty. He won't say it's okay to poke a pencil in your eye and have good vision. It's not. It's not. That's not how reality works. Okay? All the wicked he will destroy. This And uh, the transgressor shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalms 145 and 37. That was a quote from those two chapters. Continue on with her quote. The power and authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. Yet all the manifestations of retributive justice will be perfectly consistent with the character of God as merciful, long-suffering, and benevolent being. Does your brain immediately say harmony? Or wait a second. Put, use power to put down rebellion and retributive justice is merciful and benevolent? You see harmony in those comments? If you're before a judge in here for any crime and you get mercy and benevolence, are you also getting retributive justice at the same time? You expect, if you expect retributive justice from this judge, are you expecting to walk out with a pardon? Do you understand imperial law concepts cannot harmonize this, to- this text? It's contradictory. So what do you hear? Is it an external punishment, an application of design law, or an application of design law? It says the power and authority of the divine government will be employed. What's the power and authority of the divine government? Truth, love, power, truth, and love. Do you have that Assimilation, immediately your, your, your computer pulls up other quotes and, and data points that inform you of what that looks like because you've read other places about the power of the gospel that Paul talks about in Romans, which is the good news of the truth. Or do you have this quote in mind, Desire of Ages, same author, page 759, which goes, God could have destroyed Satan and all his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority, remember the power and authority, his authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. Do you bring that authority and power, which was the power and authority of the divine government we employ to put down rebellion. And the power and authority is truth and love. 
How do we use truth and love to put down rebellion and inflict retributive justice? How do we do it? You got your hand up. Isaiah 1, starting with verse 24, says, Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your iniquities. Okay, so that's for those who trust him. What about those who don't? And we're really talking about the ones who don't trust him. Will he purify, cleanse, and save those who reject him? So we're understanding his end time, the wicked, the rebellious, who won't be reconciled. What does God do to them? Does he use his power to torture and kill them? What does this executive justice look like? Well, keeping on with the quote. We just, remember, I, I, we power, the power and authority of the divine government. Do you now, when you hear power and authority, think truth, love, freedom? That's the power. That's the authority. Or do you think flaming swords, <laughs> mighty power? Is that what you're thinking? Compelling power, coercive power. That kind of power is found only under Satan's government. God doesn't use that kind of power. Keep going with the quote. God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in a slavish obedience. He desires that the creatures of his hand shall love him because he's worthy of love. Can God get this outcome by threatening and then inflicting external punishments upon people who don't love him? Can he get it? No, imperial imposed law violates the law of liberty and, co- and uses coercive force and always destroys love and incites rebellion. That's why Satan wants Christianity to teach that God, in order to be just, must use power to punish the wicked because he knows if you believe that, it undermines your ability to trust him and ultimately you rebel from him. Continue with the quote. God would have them obey him because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. And all who have a just conception of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him in admiration of his attributes. What does God want? Our love and trust. That's why it says, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord, Zechariah 4. How does the Spirit work? The Spirit of truth and love. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. This is how God wins. This is the power So you see Satan's power of lies to get us to conceive of a God as a being who's other than love, a dictator, an inflictor of pain and suffering, which we call justice, which undermines our ability to actually love and trust him. That's one of Satan's goals. That's his power. Continue with the quote. The principles, because we're asking this question um, how, about this punishment. How, do, how does this punishment come that he's given decisive evidence that he will punish the transgressors? So I'm asking you, are you concluding these other data points in how you understand quotes like this? He would have them obey him because they, uh, yeah, I already read that one. All right. The principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript of the will and character of God. Christ declared that he taught nothing except that which he had received from his father. The principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precepts. Love your, na- love your enemies. 
The principles uncovered, harmony with the Savior, saying, love your enemies. Wait, love your enemy is the principle upon which God executes justice and punishes sin? Do you, when you think decisive evidence that he will punish sin, he will uh, use executive justice, do you immediately think he's going to show love to his enemies? That's what I'm thinking, love my enemies. Is that what you think when you hear those words? That's love right there. Hmm. That's what this says. It's love for your enemies. Only design law. If you understand design law, you will see how loving it is. It's absolute love. And we're going to, it unpacks further in this quote. If you can't see it yet, let's keep going with the quote. God executes justice. There's the same language. Executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those upon whom his judgments are visited. For their good. What does this mean? What does justice mean? Doing what's right. That's exactly doing what's right. And what is right? Is it right to give people what they choose? Is it right to let people reap what they have chosen after repeated attempts to win them to love and trust? Does God let people go to reap what they have chosen when they are still healable and savable or when they've destroyed within themselves the faculties that respond to truth and love? When does he let them go? And how is it good for the wicked for God to let them go? How is that good for them? Because if God did not let the wicked go, if if, uh, those who've hardened their hearts, if he did not let them die from their sin then God would create by his power a place of torment. And he will never do this. He will not torment his children. Thus for mercy, for love, for best of the wicked, he executes justice, meaning he does what is right, the right thing for them. He sets them free to reap what they've chosen, separation from the source of life, so they will not spend eternity in torment. Continue with the quote. He would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character. What are the laws of his government? Truth, love, and freedom. Design laws. Can you force people to love you? To enjoy your presence? You can't do it. He can continue with the quote. He surrounds them with the tokens of his love. He grants them a knowledge of his law and follows them with the offers of his mercy. But they despise his love, make void his law, reject his mercy. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know he abhors their sin. The Lord bears long with their perversity. But the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny is to be decided. Pause. How is that often taught? Well, God, Jesus is in heaven, going over the record books. He's examining each case. And when your name comes up, he, the decisive hour has come. He is going to examine, and he's going to make a decision, and he's going to determine. And if you haven't had your sins covered, then he's going to look at your hand and say, out, probation is closed, you're done. The judge has ruled. Yes. Happy David, Lord, search me and try me. Know my thoughts, examine my heart. If there be any wicked way in me, show me, help me to 
Yes, we should be daily work. Yes, we should be daily inviting God in to continue to develop us, heal us, and so forth. But this decisive hour is often taught as a judicial thing by a magistrate in heaven going over a record when your case is presented. And Jesus, if, and, and it's often, I've heard pastors talk this way. And if you're not to surrender to Jesus, if you haven't confessed all your sins, uh, and when the devil begins to present all of them, they're still in the books. Your advocate in heaven, Jesus stands up with tears in his eyes, and he can't say, "My blood has paid your price," because you haven't had them covered. And so he just hangs his head as the judge rules. You're dead. You're done. Probation is closed for you. Fear. Yeah. This is such a corruption of reality. It's not true. The decisive. Who makes the decision that closes the probation or the heart of every person? We do. Yes. So can you apply these concepts to a person whose life is uh, suddenly cut short, an auto accident, and they have not chosen God, and they have not gone against God. They're just... Yes, we can. Thank you. Yes, they apply to every person. And we'll come back to that question if we have to unpack it with more examples. But I want to finish this so we see what's going on here. Uh, will, he chain, will he then chain these rebels to his side? Will he force them to do his will? Those who have chosen Satan as their leader and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. Why can't they enter God's presence? Is it because God hasn't had the proper payment presented to him to assuage his anger and wrath? And if he saw them without the proper payment, he would get infuriated and say, how dare you come in here in my presence without the proper payment? Is that how they're not prepared? Or they are something inherently in them that would be repulsed, that would be uh, uh, unhappy, uh, tormented even, to be in the presence of holiness. Continue with the quote. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Fixed by who? How did it become fixed? What law caused it to become fixed? The law of exertion and the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. And their, their choices to repeatedly reject truth, repeatedly shun love, repeatedly refuse to repent, repeatedly embrace selfishness, they harden their hearts, they sear their consciences to the point that no amount of love and truth has any impact. They're beyond reach. Love and truth shines down, but they are completely unresponsive to it. They fix themselves this way. God didn't do this to them. Continue with the quote. Can they enter heaven to dwell forever with those whom they despised and hated on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interests? Could those who've lived their lives spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high, holy state of perfection that ever exists there? Their souls filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, and rapturing music and melodious strains rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits upon the throne. Pause right there. What do you think that looks like? Ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits on the throne. What do you think that looks like? Lake of fire. 
So Daniel chapter 7, 9 through 10. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair on his head was like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And how many were injured by this fire in that text? See, again, are, when you read these things about, about the streams of light flowing from the face of him, does your computer immediately pop up Daniel 7? And other places like this. Or Hebrews 12.29, For our God is a consuming fire. This light looks like fire. But is it harmful? No. No. It bathes the righteous. We live in this fire. It's the fires of truth and love. We're not injured by it. But what about the wicked? What happens to those who've hardened themselves in selfishness, who've hardened themselves in deceit, when they come into the presence of infinite truth and love, where their own self-deception, their lies about, I'm a really good person, I'm this, and all those lies about who they are, cannot hide them from the penetrating truth of God's reality. And they become aware of their own ugliness of character, their own corruption, their own self-centeredness, their own perversity. They become aware of the pain they've, they've inflicted upon others. Not just cognitive awareness. Awareness on all levels of a reality that you can experience. They're aware. It's infinite truth. Do you think this is a place that they'll enjoy if they haven't been healed? Eternally burning fire. And from where does the pain and suffering come? Does it come from the fire? Or does it come from the unremedied sin in the hearts and minds and characters of the wicked? Continue with the quote. Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth, of holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven, but they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven, and now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be tortured to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. What is being described here? What are you hearing? Do you hear a law being applied here? The law of liberty, design law, reality, their own condition, what it's like to enter that space. This is just how reality works. On this earth right now, God shields every one of us from his full unveiled presence, giving us time to, you know, Malachi talks about, I hope your computer pops these things into your head, that the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings is really a mistranslation. It's in his beams. It's the S-U-N of righteousness. Rise with healing in his rays or in his beams. It's the beams of light. It's the beams of truth. And at the end of time, this is at the end of time, before he comes, the truth and light of the reality of God begins to rise like a sunrise. And imagine you're in a, in a dark cave and you haven't seen the light for weeks and they bring you out on a day like today on a at noontime. It's overwhelming. You want to run back into the cave, but they bring you out at 4 a.m. and let you sit there as the sunrise. 
As the dawn rises, you're able to assimilate the light and the light and you become accustomed to it. And pretty soon you can stand in the brightness of it all. And God is, is his rays of truth right now at this time in human history are rising. And people are to be assimilating and growing in the truth. It's expelling the distortions, expelling the lies, so that when he comes, we will meet him face to face for we shall be like him. When you read stuff, does your computer integrate these multiple data points? You see how reality works. Do you integrate the text? Says, they, would, they would flee from this place. They would welcome destruction. Do you integrate the text of Revelation 6.16? They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Do you integrate? What is it they want? Do they want to be in his presence? They don't want to be in his presence. They would flee from this place. They would welcome destruction. The destiny, came with the quote, the destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. I asked earlier, when the decisive hour comes, who's making the choice to decide? The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves voluntary there won't be one person lost who says judge i really want to be in heaven not one every one of them says judge god ruler jesus i don't want to be there and to prove that ellen white talks about the new jerusalem gates being opened all the way to the point where the wicked who have been risen and now marshaled together and organized start their attack And then he orders the gates to be closed, showing that any one of them could have come in at any time they wanted before that point. The the scriptures describe the same thing in Revelation. When the new, after the, after the thousand years when the wicked are raised and Jerusalem is on earth, for a period of time they go about building implements of war. And however long that time is, the gates of the new Jerusalem are open the entire time. They are not, and no one is kept out by an angel with a flaming sword. No one's kept out by God. But they all stay out. Nobody comes in. Because they're kept out by their own choice. They do not want to be in that kingdom. And this is one of the reasons they raise the person who died in the car wreck. They raise him at the end of the thousand years to demonstrate, I'm not keeping that person who died at 21 in the car wreck out, even with the witness of, of the new Jerusalem and all of the saved, and maybe they have loved ones inside calling out to them to come in, they still won't come. The car wreck didn't keep them out. They keep themselves out. Continue with the quote. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Incurable. The verdict is you're beyond healing. There's nothing to do for you. And so I set you free to reap what you have chosen. So when you read quotes like, God has given in his word a decisive evidence that, his, that he will punish transgressors of his law. Do you immediately bring in all this other data and understand, yes, and this is how it works. This is how reality works. Or do you have this artificial human law thing and you immediately pr- picture a court and you picture a great white throne and you picture records open and you picture God using power to torture and kill people. That's Satan's view. Sunday's lesson. Tim, yeah. a lot of the folks, at least that I talked to, don't integrate, don't want to integrate because they want a God that looks like their interpretation of that first quote. You're correct. And that's why God is waiting for a people. He is waiting for a people 
at the end of time, he'll be so settled into the truth that they cannot be moved. The servants of God sealed in their forehead, Revelation 7. And when that group of people sealed in their forehead, so settled into the truth, but intellectually and spiritually cannot be moved, then the four winds loosen, and troublesome times happen on the earth. Those troublesome times happening on the earth cause people who aren't yet permanently sealed in either side to wake up and go, what's happening in the world? And that group that is the servants of God, which are his spokespersons through the Bible, God's servants are referred to as his prophets, his prophets, my servants, the prophets, not the prognosticators of future events, but prophets primarily through history were people who came to the people with a message for that time for those people. They were God's message. Jonah came to Nineveh with a message for those people. He wasn't prophesying about future events. And so most of Micah and Hosea and most of the prophets were coming to the people with a message for God for that time. God is waiting for a people, his servants, to be sealed in their forehead at this time in history so that we can go to the world with a message for this time. Final message of mercy, Christ Object Lessons, page 411. The final message of mercy is the truth about God's character of love. That's the final message. He's waiting for a people to be able to give that message. You can't give a message of a God of love if you're teaching an imperial, penal, legal system. He's not a God of love in that view. It always breaks down. Yes? Doesn't part of that penal system also lead us to say, the person killed in the car wreck, what's that snapshot? Gone for eternity. That's right. Instead of saying, what's the heart? That's right. Where would they have gone? That's right. Had that not happened? That's right. You see this... And you see this in the altar calls, the baptismal calls. I'm gonna, the Spirit has moved on me to keep this hour open for just a little longer. There might be someone here who walks out, who's never given their heart to the Lord, and gets killed in a car wreck, and is lost for all eternity. And I'm going to keep this hour open to give that person a chance. Isn't there just one? Isn't there just one? Just one. I mean, you've all heard this. It makes you want to vomit. Yes. <laughs> It's all fear-based, and it's all fraudulent. You don't see the New Testament apostles preaching this thing. They preach Jesus crucified for our sins and resurrected for our, 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 our salvation. The only way of healthy living on earth today or in eternity future, give your hearts to him. And we're going to move on. Can't do more of that right now. Sunday's lesson um, talked about, um, boy, I don't know if I should do Sunday or just jump to this other one. I think I have to jump ahead. There's so many good points in the lesson. We only have a few minutes. We'll come back to Sunday if we have time. On Monday's lesson, the third paragraph, Jesus adopted these verses from Isaiah. His mission statement, the ministry and mission were to be both spiritual and practical. I really want to affirm and say thank you to the lesson for actually putting that in there, spiritual and practical. Why are God's truths not just spiritual, but always practical? Because they operate on design law. That's why. And what happens is, uh, when Christianity became corrupted with imperialism, so-called spiritual truths lost their practical application and became actually impractical and harmful and injured people, like indulgences. 
which was based on the imposed law that sin's breaking uh, God's law and requires uh, some type of payment. And the church began to teach, well, you can bring a monetary payment to the church to pay for your sin. And so you could even go to the, to the priest and say, you know what, I'm lusting after my neighbor's wife. I'd like to uh, murder my neighbor and rape her. Well, that would be 5,000 gold pieces. If you do that, that will not be in your record book and you've paid the indulgence and that's the payment for that sin. That's what happened in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages. It was impractical and harmful. Do you think that type of, of uh, uh, indulgence is the only way this imperial thing becomes impractical? Or does it become impractical in other ways, about people seeking legal pardon and erasure from history and records in heaven their sins rather than seeking transformation of character? That's impractical. There's no practical application to believing that Jesus is in heaven, pleading his blood to his Father and erasing books. That's not practical. Just like it's not practical to shove Jesus in front of me so that God doesn't see me. Exactly. All these things are impractical. Practical is what was, was quoted earlier, search me and see the wicked way in me, creating me a clean heart, O oh God. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get a new heart and right spirit. Design law, sin is deviation from the laws that God built reality operating. God is working through his agencies and Christ and the Holy Spirit to fix us. And what happens then is the cruel become kind. And as they become kind because they get a new heart and right spirit, they have less conflict in their relationship. So they have less fear. They have less anxiety. They have less stress. Their amygdala calms. Their inflammatory cascades decrease. They have better physical and mental health. Or the wronged, the people who have been wronged by others, they forgive and seek to see the world accurately or truthfully. This means that... They assess the trustworthiness of another person and set healthy boundaries. Thus, they don't harbor grudges. They don't remain bitter. They're not angry. But they also don't continually expose themselves to mistreatment. Very practical. And the results for them are better physical, mental, and relational health. They, um, those without self-control, last fruit of the Spirit is there's spiritual truths. You gain self-mastery, self-control. And so they develop control and they get sober. They stop their gambling. They stop overeating. Uh, They stop uh, visiting porn websites. They experience better physical, mental, and spiritual. Practical changes when you actually understand design law and experience what God has for everything that he has because it's built on how reality works has practical applications. Much of what's taught in religion though is impractical. It's, It's mystical. It's some ritual. It's some I have, I have many in the notes. I've got to move on. One of the big points that we teach in here, and I, I just had to bring this guy things. It's fun. Is how do you tell what's truth? And we use the method of the integrative evidence-based approach, right? Which harmonizes scripture, science, and experience. Well, if you look at the New Testament, the primary authors of the New Testament, Luke wrote twenty-seven percent, Paul wrote twenty-three percent, and John wrote twenty percent. And if you look at the integrative evidence based approach, the, Paul is a theologian focusing on scripture truth. Luke is a physician, an expert in science. And John was a regular guy who understood life experiences. And you harmonize the three. And this is how that you, and I have some more examples, but I have something else I want to get to because I think it might be the most controversial thing we discussed so far today. There's a bunch of stuff in the notes about the integration of medicine and the medicine and, uh, and scripture are harmonized. The, the medical arts are the most powerful way to uh, reveal the gospel. And the reason for that is the medical arts always operate on the laws of health, which are design laws. And not only shows the plan of healing, but it shows how reality works. It doesn't matter how much the doctor loves 
his patient, how trustworthy, how kind, how gracious he is. It doesn't matter if the patient persists in breaking the laws of health, they won't get better. And that's how reality works. The, uh, in Tuesday's lesson, talk about healing the deaf, dumb, uh, blind, and so forth. Now, why didn't Jesus just translate all these people directly to heaven like Enoch and Elijah? Paralytic, blind person, leper. Why didn't he just translate them to heaven? See, what happened to every one of those people he healed? They, died. they, went back they died the first death. That's what happened to every one of them. Why didn't he just translate them to heaven? Because they weren't ready, what we read earlier. They were not prepared for all of the infinite glory of God. They had work in their characters to do. He couldn't translate them to heaven and have them survive there yet. So he healed what he could, inspiring them to love and trust God so that their characters can be transformed so they'll be in heaven. Um, and, and there may be some other elements that we don't have time to go into that might have needed to be done uh, during the investigative judgment to fix the last little remnants, and it's in here if you want to read that. Wednesday's lesson, trying to get to that controversial bit, which is in uh, Thursday's lesson. And in Thursday's lesson, we have like three minutes to do this controversial bit. Um, first paragraph says that God is a God who sees and hears the cries of the poor and the oppressed. Uh, that God is a God who, in Jesus, has experienced and endured the worst of our world's inhumanity, oppression, and injustice is astounding. Do you hear how that, just see how that's written? So what do you then say to the person who says, well, Jesus wasn't molested as a child. He wasn't physically beaten most days of his life by his own father. He wasn't trafficked as a sex slave as a child. He wasn't given whiskey in his infant bottle, which some of my patients had happened when they were children. Their alcoholics or mothers put whiskey in their bottles to calm them down. He didn't have whiskey put in his infant formula to keep him from crying. He wasn't taken as a boy and forced into a death squad in Africa. So what do you say to people who argue Jesus did not experience the worst of what this world's inhumanity has to offer? He had to witness his creation, experiencing it, knowing that he had to leave it be. Yeah, so the, but the, the, statement, the statement in the lesson is, God is a God who is, in Jesus, has experienced and endured the worst of our world's inhumanity, oppression, and injustice, and, and that he's done that in Jesus, it's astounding, and, and so forth. What do you say to this? And this I, have you ever heard this before, this, this quote? Or have you heard it before? And have you heard people come back with the criticism I'm making right now? Have you heard people come back and say, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. So what do you say? The argument made by the quarterly is a false argument, a false position that sets up a false counter-argument. Jesus' mission on earth was not to experience every possible experience of every human being throughout all history. Jesus did not personally experience premenstrual mood disorder. He didn't experience childbirth or postpartum depression. He didn't experience the temptation to be addicted to video games. He never experienced what it's like to take LSD or be tempted to take LSD. Jesus didn't drive cars and be tempted to speed. He didn't. Now you're just meddling. Now I'm meddling. We create a false idea when we suggest that Jesus personally experienced every human experience. He did not experience every human experience, and it wasn't his mission to do so. 
His mission, what was his mission? His mission was to overcome sin and cure the sin condition. And thus he was tempted, according to Scripture, quote, in every way, just as we are, but without sin. In every way does not mean every specific circumstance, but every motive and method of temptation. And they are, here's the methods. Fear and selfishness, the survival of the fittest and self-gratification drives. Jesus experienced those temptations in Gethsemane when he had powerful human emotions tempting him to save himself. Sensualism, this is what it says in, uh, in, first, uh, in first John, that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are the big avenues of temptation. So sensualism would be all the temptations of the physical body, hunger, thirst, fatigue, cravings. He experienced those things materialism. He was tempted with the wealth of the entire world. Egotism and power. He was tempted with all the power was offered to him. And so the, the, the me, and then the methods. He was tempted external to himself by Satan in the, in, the, in the desert, by his own brothers, by the church leaders, by the crowds at the cross, by the soldiers, by the hurt and rejection of his own disciples. He had the temp- temptation all around him, tempting him external to himself. And then he had the human emotions internal to himself, agonizing him in Gethsemane and tempting him. He had the entire gamut of the ways we're tempted and the themes that we're tempted upon. And he experienced all these in order to destroy the infection of fear and selfishness and develop a sinless human character while simultaneously revealing the truth and refuting the lies of Satan. We have some quotes in, uh, uh, we don't have time to go into, some more evidences and quotes to support all that. But you have to be able to identify that that statement sounded so wonderful. But it's a false statement. You present a false statement, you open ideas for a false counter-argument that makes God look bad. We have to have discernment to see truth. And the truth sets free. Yes. You opened my eyes because since I was a little boy, I was thinking, why God doesn't destroy Adam and Eve after this day? Instead, God looked for Adam and said, I don't think so. He called angry. He looked for him. That's amazing. We thank you, brother. Let's close with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a God of love, the creator who built all reality to operate on your protocols, your your principles of love and truth and freedom. And we are so thankful that you are not the source of pain and suffering and death and that you loved us so much that when Adam and Eve chose to break your design and infect themselves with this terminal situation that you have sent Jesus to be the second Adam to fix this condition and provide us the remedy that will set us right, restore us to unity with you, and write your design laws of love and truth and freedom into our hearts and minds. We ask for the Spirit to come. Take the victories of Christ. Reproduce it in us. And give us the ability, the the understanding, the capacity to go out and share this message to help set other minds free. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.